The Bob Murphy Show, episode 181. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show I am going to be talking to Walter Block and William Barnett, bringing them back. I had them on in a previous episode. Some of you may recall where we were talking about a paper they had written. But in today's episode, we're talking about the paper, Newly Discovered Gold Does Not Distort the Economy, semicolon. It is not a market failure. Now, what they were doing in this paper was critiquing, it was a response to something I had written in 2019 in the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics. So right now in this little intro, and I will not go more than five minutes total, all right, so just bear with me, folks, but let me give you some of the background to make sure that you understand the sorts of things that Block and Barnett and I are talking about in this upcoming discussion. So first of all, just to clarify, if you go through, click through and read their actual paper, I'm telling you they're misunderstanding some of my claims and what I'm doing rhetorically in my paper. So at certain points, they'll say, now Murphy thinks this, but that's wrong because, and it's, no, I I don't actually think that, okay? That type of stuff, though, is not really relevant for the discussion you're about to hear, all right? And it's not that I had them on to defend my honor. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about, I think, is the, the substantive question about gold, but I'm just warning you ahead of time, if you merely click through and read their paper, you might walk away thinking, wow, Bob really fumbled the ball on this one. And I'm saying, no, it's because they misunderstood what I was doing. All right. So if you care about that, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 181 and I'll have a blog post where I go through point by point and explain why I think they misunderstood rhetorically what I was doing in my 2019 paper. Okay. But again, that stuff, you don't need, you don't need to know those details to understand this upcoming discussion. I'm just warning you in case you click through. Okay. As far as this upcoming discussion, here's what you need to know. Fractional reserve banking That's the process by which you go, you give $100 in cash to the bank to put in your checking account. Now you're walking around town. If you put your ATM card in and you look at your balance, it's $100 higher. So you think that's your money in the bank. Of course, the bank typically doesn't keep all that cash there. They lend some of it out. So that's what fractional reserve banking means. A lot of Austrians have problems with that. Most notably, Murray Rothbard. He thought not only was it economically harmful, but that there was something fraudulent about it. Other Rothbardians have taken up that claim as well. Joe Salerno, what he's done in his work on this is to say, look, let's put aside whether it's fraud or not, or, you know, let's, those are legal issues. As economists, though, let's establish that fractional reserve banking per se causes the boom-bust cycle, right? The way that Ludwig von Mises and then Hayek elaborated on the way that injections of money into the credit market can push interest rates down to artificially low levels that don't correspond to genuine saving that causes an unsustainable boom. And then because of actual physical reasons, there's not enough capital goods to take all these projects to their completion. There has to be a bust at some point. And so Salerno argues that if you look at how Mises and Hayek understood the boom-bust cycle and what causes it, you can see it's fractional reserve banking. It's not merely government intervention. It's the practice of fractional reserve banking. Now, the way somebody like Murray Rothbard would reconcile that was to say in a free market, there wouldn't be fractional reserve banking. He thinks that is itself a practice that is supported by various types of state intervention. Okay. George Selgin and Larry White, calling themselves free bankers, think there's nothing wrong with fractional reserve banking per se. They think that's perfectly legitimate and would happen in a free society. They just think government intervention screws things up. And so it perverts that otherwise totally fine market phenomenon. Now, in my 2019 paper, I was agreeing with Salerno. And to make the case that if you understood how the boom-bust cycle works in the Misesian framework, you would see it has to be due to fractional reserve banking per se. 
not just an undue amount that's exacerbated by government intervention, but it's not the practice per se causes it. I quote Mises where he clearly says, even in a world with not fiat money, but commodity money, where everybody relies on gold, that if extra gold were discovered and hit the loan market first and pushed interest rates down before the rest of the economy adjusted to the new influx of money, that could cause at least a mini boom bust cycle. And so once you see Mises' reasoning there, it's crystal clear that he thinks it's fractional reserve banking per se that's the problem. All right, and so that was rhetorically why I was quoting from Mises just to make this point that Salerno was making. Block and Barnett went after me on that one point. And they said, no, in a free society, discoveries of new gold, even if they hit the loan market first, can't cause a boom-bust cycle. So that's what, and I think that's a, a fascinating discussion. And that's what we're talking about in this upcoming episode. Okay, I went a little bit over, but such is life. Okay, now my discussion with Walter and Bill. Well, Walter and Bill, welcome back to the Bob Murphy Show. Thank you for inviting us, Bob. Always good to be with you, Bob. And it's amazing too, Walter, that you're you're outside there and the satellite's just picking you up. This is this is great stuff. We were, you're staying socially distant from everybody. It's good good to see. <laughs> um, so I think in the recorded introduction here, I would have already told people how to go read the paper, and some of them went and did read both of them, but probably a lot of people didn't. So I think we'll get the most benefit out of this. Is so, so the issue is going to be in a in a Rothbardian type free society private property rights. And let's assume, you know, there's no fractional reserve banking. And I'm repeating myself because we're talking about a, a Rothbardian world. And then the, the central issue that I think we're going to flesh out is could newly mined gold in any way cause the boom bust cycle in the Misesian sense? So one thing I want to clarify just for our purposes is I actually personally am not sure how I feel about that. I can see arguments on both sides. In the paper you guys were critiquing I was making the more modest point that Mises said, at least in principle, that could happen. So before we dive into the, the meaty one, let me just check. Do you guys agree with me that Mises thinks it's theoretically possible gold could cause a boom-bust cycle? I believe Mises thinks that. Okay. And I believe that if you read Rothbard, you have to think that he thinks that. And I think they're both wrong. Okay. And then what's interesting is I think think Rothbard, for sure, I'm certain Mises thinks so, whereas Rothbard, I haven't reread him, but I thought he disagreed and said, no, in a, as long as this is all voluntary, you can't cause a business cycle. And that's why he put that section in the, you know, the violent part of his book. Well, I hear what you're saying. And of course, Rothbard has written a lot. And when I say written a lot, you know I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Who's getting <laughs> more than my library? But Get that anyway. guy a typewriter. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, you're bound to find anybody who's written as much as Rothbard has and as brilliant as he was, mm -hmm. um, you have to have some things that you've written that are contradictory. Okay. Okay. Somewhere. Okay. So let's just assume that this is one of those things. So you start off, my position is that Rothbard and Mises both say that um, whatever quantity of money you have, and they're talking about gold money and a non Whatever quantity of money you have, that's the optimal quantity, and you should never add to it. Okay, they both say that. And this is, we've documented this in our paper, the optimum quantity of money or whatever we called it. Okay, 20 years, 15 years. And then you say, okay, well, that means that if you mine gold and refine it and make more gold, gold into money, you're misallocating scarce resources, okay? And when that money enters into the system, it's going to distort the structure of prices. This is a type of market failure. And I just say that's nonsense. And I think the fundamental problem in this, I think they both make this fundamental mistake, and that that is that they say clearly, and again, we've documented, when I say we, I'm talking about Walter and I have documented this in papers that we've written, that they say that uh, money is sui generis, that it's neither a consumer's good nor a capital good. And so Walter and I have written another paper that said, no, you're wrong. Money is a capital good. It's not sui generis. And once you accept that money is a capital good, then... The issue of if somebody goes out and mines more gold, 
it must be because the gold is expected to have more value than the resources used to mine in the gold and refine it. And then you have options. Do you make it into coins? Do you put it into dentalware? Do you use jewelry? Whatever you say. But again, if we think that the market works in general, sure, people make entrepreneurial mistakes, but you know those aren't systematic in the market. If you think that, then you say, well, at the margin, if somebody is putting some of the newly mined gold into coins instead of dentalware or jewelry or whatever, it must be because it has more value there. How can we get a business cycle out of this? Let me uh, pipe up a little. I think there are really two issues on the table, one of which I'm very, very interested in, the other a little less so. One that I'm very, very interested in, is it true that gold uh, discovery or converting uh, jewelry into gold money will create the business cycle and is a market failure? The other issue, which I'm less interested, but you know, it's a history of thought issue, is was Mises wrong on this? Was Rothbard wrong on this? Or was uh, Hayek wrong on that? Now, that's interesting. But to me, my priority is more, is it true rather than who said what? Mm-hmm. Secondly, uh, since this is sort of an introduction and, and we can't assume that everyone has read all the papers, let me just talk about what market failure is. And Bill alluded to this a little bit, but I want to elaborate a little bit more on what a market failure is. A market failure is not, I open up a restaurant and then I go broke because of the pandemic and and or even forgetting about the pandemic. I open up a restaurant and, and nobody comes in. I, I locate on a cul-de-sac or uh, whatever it is. That's not a market failure. That's just entrepreneurial error. And in the free society, we're going to have that because we're human beings and human beings are the mistake-making animals and we're always going to have bankruptcies and stuff like that. But that's not a market failure. What a market failure is, is something where it's systematic and, or nowadays they say systemic or something like that, where the government can step in and improve matters. And, and the usual market failures are things like a monopoly and externalities and public goods and things like that. And I think the Austrian view is there ain't no such thing as a market failure. Not that there ain't no such thing as bankruptcy and and entrepreneurial error, but just that there's no such thing as uh, uh, something where the government can come in and step in and forget about the uh, the ethics of it, but can come in and step in and and improve uh, efficiency. So I think that the view that Bill and I are articulating is that a gold discovery that becomes money is not a market failure and does not misallocate resources and does not create the Austrian business cycle theory or, or any business cycle. And as I say, secondarily, the, the question is, well, did Murray, who I think all three of us regard as just a genius, along with Mises, but, you know, the, they're human beings and we all make mistakes. And um, I agree with Bill that they erred in this regard, but I, I regard that as a secondary issue. The primary issue is more, is the theory correct? Is a new gold discovery that turns into money misallocative and, and a market failure? Okay, great. So... And again, to clarify, you're right in terms of the history of economics. The, the one reason, though, I do think on this particular issue, it is more relevant than in other ones about, hey, what did Mises think, is because what we're wondering is what triggers the Misesian business cycle. And so that's why of all the economists in the world or in history, what Mises thought about this particular matter is, is you know more relevant than normally would be. But but again, the, the, the overarching thing is I'm being weaselly and saying, Gosh, I'm con- I'm persuaded by both sides. So for the purposes of our discussion here, I'm gonna I'm not gonna keep saying what Mises was. I'll just I'll just be pushing back. But I'm here representing what I think is the Misesian position because I I know where he's coming from. So one thing is market failure means a very particular type of thing to like a mainstream neoclassical economist. And but and anyway, so I'll I'll go ahead and use that just because I know you guys use that in your paper. But I just do want to note. There could be a thing. So let me just say this, though. How do you feel about the line of thought? I've seen some Austrians say, okay, look, rather than just trying to tackle it head on and say there's no such thing as market failure, they'll say, well, there's also government failure. So we'll say, okay, even if you know we can see there's certain things like climate change, let's say, where, you know, suppose what Al Gore says about the, the natural science relationships is roughly true and humans emitting too much CO2 that causes this, you know, negative externality and da 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 
rather than just try to define out of existence the very notion of a negative externality the way some Austrians do, we can concede it. And still, it doesn't follow that giving Washington the power to lay a carbon tax is going to fix things. Because why would you trust government officials to correctly take into account the needs of all of humanity, right? So, but my question on right now to you guys is, couldn't someone coherently think that, yeah, technically gold entering the loan market and causing a boom bust cycle, yeah, that could be a market failure, but that doesn't mean I'm in favor of the government regulating the banking sector. I could still be an anarcho-capitalist, even though I acknowledge, yeah, theoretically this could happen. I don't think that you can acknowledge that it can happen theoretically and be yourself be theoretically sound when you make that statement. I mean, to me, market failure, and let's just talk about this. What we're talking about is human beings, forget Robinson Crusoe. We want to satisfy our wants, you know, reduce felt unease, however you want to put it. And so we produce and consume things. And because human beings are different, we have the, you know, as as, uh, Adam Smith said, you know, specialization of labor, and then we exchange goods based on comparative advantage. Thank you, Ricardo, and all that. The key thing, one of the keys, I think, to economics is the scarcity thing, right? And so the question is, do we misallocate resources? Okay, I mean, if we misallocate resources. And so then when you start talking about from an Austrian position, that kind of thing, to me, the question then becomes, well, you know, 2020 hindsight's nice, but, you know, we don't have it. Oh, we do have that, but we don't have 2020 foresight. So then the question becomes, in a free society where all human acts and interactions are on a voluntary as opposed to a coerced basis, can we misallocate resources on an ex-ante basis? I don't think we can. So the only way you could, and a business cycle implies misallocation of resources, systematic, you know, misallocation of resources. Well, how can that come about? Well, there has to be coercion somewhere. And then where does this coercion come from? And what causes it? And the answer is obvious, government. Let me uh, pipe up here. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think several important issues have been raised. I'm now going to allude to other Rothbardian papers, which I regard as exquisite, excellent, magnificent. One of them is, um, I forget the exact title, something like Utility and Welfare Economics. That was one in the Southern Economic Journal in the 50s? Yeah, and then we Towards the Reconstruction, yeah. That's it, Towards the Reconstruction. Just magnificent, exquisite. And what he does there is he elaborates on Bill's point about ex-ante. Ex-ante... Everything is cool. Everything is good. As Mises would say, uh, the whole purpose of human action is to render the future a little bit better than it otherwise would be had you not acted to get rid of felt uneasiness. So that's one just exquisite point that Murray makes. Another one is the air pollution thing. Uh, Again, I forget the whole title, but it's a long, long piece, maybe 90 pages, and, and it's just exquisite again where he talks about air pollution, and uh, air pollution is not a market failure. It's rather a trespass of uh, soot particles or smells or or whatever it is. Now, a third point I want to make is, Bob, you said, well, is it a coherent position to say, yes, there's a market failure, but government can't improve things? This is precisely Milton Friedman's view of antitrust. Mm -hmm. Milton Friedman believes that there is a market failure of antitrust, and he says that and it costs certain amounts, you know, the dead weight loss, you know, the usual monopoly uh, diagram that, that mainstream people have. But then he says, but it costs something to fix it. And we should only have antitrust cases if the, the benefits outweigh the cost. So he is perfectly willing to accept the view that, yes, there's a market failure and that sometimes the government should fix it up, but at other times the government shouldn't fix it up. So what you said about uh, this point, yes, it's possible to take the view with regard to gold that, yes, a, a new discovery of gold that turns into money will create the business cycle. However, they only discovered uh, you know $100 worth of gold, and, and it's so small that uh, it's not going to be uh, much of a – because you know quantity is very important. And therefore, uh, the government shouldn't get involved. So what you're saying is a perfectly coherent position to take. I don't think it's the correct position, but it's coherent. It's um, you know uh, not totally unreasonable. It's not 
uh, completely irrational. It's just that Bill and I, and I think you also, Bob, this is, well, we're going to try to convert you to the one true faith here. Mm-hmm. We don't think that it's a market failure in the first place, but if it were a market failure, just argue endo that it is a market failure. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that the government would be justified in fixing it because there are costs of government intervening in the economy. And these costs might be much bigger than if you, know, you only you know, discover one gold ounce or you know $100 worth of gold or something like that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you discover a whole mountain full of gold and, and this really creates the Austrian business cycle theory, well, then maybe the government should prohibit the gold mining or something like that. That would be the Milton Friedman-esque uh, viewpoint. Okay, great. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because the rhetorical style in your guys' paper, which was criticizing mine, goes along the lines of, oh, well, you know, Murphy thinks there's a market failure here. So he, he would therefore would favor the government coming in. And, and, I'm, and I want to say, no, I actually assume that I actually committed and I t- took a side and got off the fence. If I did agree with Mises on that, even just morally speaking, you know what I mean? Like you could say, oh, it'd be great if everyone would give more money to the poor, but it doesn't follow if I think that, that therefore I must be in favor of course of redistribution. Look, we're all anarchists here, right, right. except I have two deviations from the one true faith of anarchism. One is, I think government should, uh, there is a market failure. Everyone should read Man, Economy, and State and Human Action, and the government should exist for the sole purpose of compelling everyone to read those books and, and to take Bob Murphy's, uh, uh, what do you call it, guide to Mises. So that that's one thing that government should do. And the other thing is pagination. You know, you read different versions of the same book and it's, and the stuff is on different pages. So when you run a seminar, it's hard to know, you know, so with those two exceptions, I'm, I'm an anarchist, but you know, obviously I'm kidding about this. And obviously Bob, you're, you're as staunch an anarchist as could be. So your position would be that if you felt that this was a market failure, it still wouldn't be justified for government to do anything because government is a coercive, uh, evil institution. And the less it does, the better. If I could interject yep, just one point, One of the things that the status have managed to do over a long period of time is grab the rhetorical high ground, if you would. And in this case, they've even gone so far as Walter says, pagination is different. If you get a different edition of Mises' human action, they're different pagination. Not true. I have several different versions, uh, I should say, editions of Keynes's general theory of employment, interest, and money, and the pagination is the same in every one. It's an interesting thing, you know, which I think they're right about. It's a great idea, but nobody coerced anybody to the best of my knowledge. Mm-hmm. Huh, that is interesting. Going along with it, though, it's not merely a, a hypothetical, because I think what I described is, is Mises' actual position that he concedes, yeah, theoretically speaking, it's possible, but empirically, it's not a big deal. So, you know, but also it would be foolish to give the government the power. So put aside the morality even, but to give the government the power to regulate banking in the name of fighting the small little boom-bust cycles that might emerge from gold mining would be crazy because look at what they would do in practice with that. So I think, you know, or, he, or, or even a, a, or even a big business cycle. Even, right, even right. if it created a big business cycle, still right, the government right. would even make it worse. Wait a minute. You're making a huge assumption here with which I disagree with. Suppose okay. we came out and, and, you know, some great entrepreneur went out and found this mountain of gold like they found mm-hmm. that mountain of silver in Peru, you, you know, the Spanish did, you know, centuries ago. Suppose they found this huge mountain of gold. And they said, gee, what it's going to take me in resource costs, when I have to pay people to mine the gold, to refine it, you know, to mint it into coins and all, is going to be less than the value of the coins. So let's do it. And so he starts turning out all these coins. Of course, he becomes fabulously wealthy, right? And other people are trying to imitate him and all that kind of stuff. But he has all these gold coins. Now, we know that you know, like any other good, the greater the supply, the lower the relative value of it is, assuming people's tastes and preferences and technology doesn't change and all that sort of purpose. So all of a sudden, we get this flood of coins, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is going to enter the market through the credit markets, financial markets, and drive interest rates down, right? 
Some of it's going to enter directly into markets for goods and services and drive their prices up. What makes that a business cycle? Okay, well, great. Is it, in other words, when we think of a business cycle and the Austrian thing, we think about a systematic misallocation of resources, which is not sustainable. It's going to be, in some sense, self-correcting. What's self-correcting here? Bill, uh, Bob and I were talking arguendo. That's okay. I, I, I certainly agree with you. It wouldn't create a business cycle. That's fine. I agree. But we were Bob and I were going arguendo, saying, suppose it did. Just suppose. But no, but, you know, that's no, it's a suppose, <laughs> you know, suppose not only the cow, but Bill Barnett can jump over the moon. Well, that's not economics. We don't, that's not physics, you know? Oh, no, no, there's nothing there's wrong with that. You're making a huge assumption. You have to explain to me how it does cause a business cycle. How that huge influx of gold coins into the economy causes a misallocation of resources. You know, here I thought Bill and I would be arguing with Bob. It's rather, <laughs> Bob and I are arguing with Bill. Uh, I don't know if I can speak for you on this, Bob, but I believe in arguendo. I believe in uh, contrary to fact conditionals. Uh, if two plus two is five, uh, well, what follows from that? Now, obviously, two plus two can't be five. But if it were, you know, we could still talk about it. So I'm saying suppose, arguendo, that uh, this did create a business cycle theory. It still does not follow that the government would uh, ameliorate things. Probably the government would even worsen things. That's the and only I would certainly there. agree with that position, but I would disagree with your assumption that this huge influx of gold could cause a business cycle. I agree with you entirely. Okay, great. How is that huge influx of gold going to cause a misallocation of resources? I agree with you on that. Okay, so so now that we've sort of cleared the the underbrush, we actually are at the the main point of contention. And so here, so you're right, Walter, we were there arguing hypothetically, but now let's take it head on because that is the central issue under discussion. So, So real briefly, and obviously... Listeners should go read the papers to get, you know, in the, the better flushing it out. But the normal way, like if I were just giving, giving a quick talk to like a, a regular crowd, like, if I, you know, adults who are worried about, oh my gosh, what was Ben Bernanke doing with QE? You know, I would go around giving talks like that to like normal people and, you know, to, to, to try to, you know, the real quick, you know, 30 second version of Austrian business cycle theory would be something like, Interest rates communicate, you know, their prices, they communicate information, they they help us coordinate things. And when Bernanke's doing QE, like it's pumping in money in, in the economy that isn't backed up by genuine saving, it pushes interest rates down to artificially low levels. That gives entrepreneurs, you know, when they're doing their calculations of profitability, it makes longer projects now appear profitable at the lowest that weren't. So they start, you go through. So Mises... I believe is arguing, this is why he's saying theoretically, he's saying if there were a, a large discovery of gold and you've got the cancel on effects, right? Where that starts raising prices. And so if that new gold happens to enter the loan market early in that process, what does it mean to, I mean, technically like bids up bond prices, I guess, but it pushes down interest rates well, before think- all the other prices have had a chance to fully adjust to the new quantity of money. And so he's saying for that brief period, technically the interest rate is artificially low in that sense. And that, so that would also cause the business cycle if you believe it causes it, you know, when the, when the commercial banks engage in credit expansion. So I think that's what his claim is. But when you were talking about Bernanke and all that, you hit the magic word and you said artificially lowered interest rates. Mm-hmm. What's artificial about Barnett going out in his backyard right now and finding a whole ton of gold, tons and tons and tons and mm-hmm. saying, hey, anybody want to borrow it? And they say, well, yeah, but the interest rate's too high. And I say, well, okay, I'll lend it to you at a lower interest rate. What's mm-hmm. artificial about that? There's nothing artificial about it. See, the key is this artificiality, i.e. ex post, or if you would, coercion, some sort of way. It's not ex ante. What's artificial about ex ante voluntary exchange? I, I've got a... Uh support for what Bill is saying, but it's a little different. I think, Bob, what you what you just said was sort of a little cheating. Okay. Right now, the price of lima beans is, is a dollar a bushel. Mm-hmm. And what's happening is everyone discovers that the lima beans cure cancer. 
So, um, you know, the demand for lima beans is going to shift to the right. Mm -hmm. And uh, when all the uh, market processes work out, lima beans will now be $100 a bushel. But right now, lima beans are only two, three, five dollars a bushel. They're moving on upward. Mm -hmm. Namely, there's no instantaneous adjustment in the market. And if you want to say, well, uh, right now the price of lima beans is a dollar a bushel and it's going to be a hundred dollars a bushel, but right now it's only twenty-five dollar bushel, and therefore it's market failure. Well, that's sort of like cheating almost. Yeah, of course uh, we don't have instantaneous movement to a hundred dollars a bushel, but to say that that's a market failure, I mean, I had a full head of hair before you said that, and look at me <laughs> now, I just pulled all my hair out. You, you can't do that. That's an improper way of regarding market failure. That. Yes, markets don't instantaneously adjust. Therefore, go, therefore, there's a market failure. Give me a break. Okay, let me let me try it this way. A conventional exposition of, suppose there's gold commodity money, but the banks engage in fractional reserve banking. Okay, Same and so they they violate Rothbard, you know, Rothbardian judges can't stop, you know, whatever, for whatever reason. So that can cause the boom-bust cycle, right? And the way I think the standard way we would talk about that is to say, okay, we're at an original equilibrium. Then the commercial banks reduce the reserve ratio. Maybe it was originally 100%, you know, so no fraction reserve. They reduce it down to 20% reserve ratio. So even though no more deposits have been made, now the bank, commercial banks create a bunch of fiduciary media, lend it out in the economy. Now, if they just do a one-shot creation of fiduciary media and lend it out, Eventually, you know, all prices will be higher, you know, not proportionally because we're not, you know, Irving Fisher, there'll be you know, specific things. But when the dust settles, prices will be higher and interest rates will be at their new level corresponding to time preferences. And if the banks just did a one-shot creation of fiduciary media, eventually that would work its way through the system and there would be no more, and the interest rate would be correct at some point, right? But the business cycle occurs because in the beginning, when that fiduciary media first hits, it pushes down interest rates. And there's a sense in which that low interest rate is, is not the correct one. That's giving entrepreneurs the wrong signal, if you will. To what end? What do you mean to what end? Well, in other words, if, you know, if we're going to use this kind of example. You're going to say, look, you know, we have gold money, but we get fractional reserve banking. And for whatever reason, the banks start lending out more money and uh, our fiduciary media. And the interest rate goes down, and uh, but eventually the interest rate will adjust back up, is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. But that causes a business cycle, and this gets us back to what is the nature of a business cycle. And the nature of a business cycle is a systematic misallocation of resources, which is unsustainable. Okay, mm -hmm. and so to me, that's critical to think that way. Yes, if you have, I don't care what you have a stock of that you're using money. I remember having a professor once that started talking about using potatoes because, you know, if interest rates got too high or prices got, people could just go out and grow potatoes, you know, grow their own money supply. But point is that as soon as you have fractional reserve banking, you are going to cause a misallocation of resources and it's going to be systematic, but it's, it's not sustainable. But that's true whether it's gold money or anything. It has to do with the fractional reserve banking. And so my point with all this is that in a just economy, uh, we would have, and I don't think we would have gold money. I think we would have gold and probably silver and maybe platinum, and who knows, copper or brass or bronze, I think we would have a number of monies that people would use on a voluntary basis, okay, and that um, they would uh, exchange not in a bimetallic system or multi-metallic system, i.e. with fixed prices set by government, but with the exchange ratios between the different monies set by markets. By, that is by the voluntary interactions of human beings. Well, here Bill and I diverge, but uh, we're just predicting. Uh, I would predict that there'd only be one. 
Not that it would be a monopoly, uh, mm. there would just be one because of the transactions costs. If we had gold, silver, and platinum, say, we'd, uh, and, and copper, we'd have, uh, I don't know, um, four different exchange ratios. Um, and I think that that would create a transactions cost. I'm a Kosian uh, to the extent that I believe there is such a thing as transactions cost. So I think my prediction, and again, you know, uh, what do they say? Economists give predictions to show they have a sense of humor. If, if we knew what we were doing, we'd all be very rich and we're not rich. Mm. Uh, but my prediction would be that it would just be one. And uh, I would say it would either be gold or silver. And I would put my money on, so to speak, on, on gold because uh, gold is um, just based on history. Uh, and now there is this, what do you call that coin? Uh, Bitcoin? Yeah. Which is also interesting. And, you know, sometimes people ask me, well, what's my view on, on Bitcoin? And I say, well, you know, I favor the gold standard or, or gold is money, uh, but I favor Bitcoin better than government fiat currency because, you know, anything better than government. But I would just diverge from Bill's prediction. But, you know, that's almost a little bit off the topic that we're supposed to be on about predicting what will happen in the future. Let's take a quick break from the discussion for some housekeeping here. For those of you who were in the supporting listeners group and you got locked out of Facebook, We've since moved to MeWe. So if you can't get back into Facebook to see the instructions for how to get over to MeWe, just contact me directly and I'll help you out. For those of you who would like to join the supporting listeners group, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute and you can see the, the relatively paltry amount that you would need to hand me in those dirty fiat dollars in order to get into the fun group at MeWe. And always remember, if you can't make a financial contribution, it still helps a lot. If you share these episodes with people you think might be interested, give them a little taste. Just, hey, hey, what about this? What about this perspective? That's always a great help as well. Thanks for listening, everybody, and let's get back to the show. Okay, so let me circle back. I understand what you're saying, Bill, when you're saying, how could it be? You know, I go out in my backyard and I find a bunch of gold and I go, you know, spend some at the tailor and I spend some at the car dealership. And I, what if I go lend some of it out and I get some IOUs from people? you know, what's qualitatively different. We don't talk about problems in these other industries. What I get what you're saying, but then by the same token, Selgin or White are going to say, yeah, the, the banker and, you know, voluntary system, there's no government, there's no central bank, voluntary system that happens to allow fractional reserve banking. And I go in my back vault and I've got some bank notes and I start lending them out and it's all voluntary. I'm not pointing guns at people. They're not forced to use my notes. How can that cause a business cycle? The only people who are accepting my notes want it. And yep, that, I agree, it pushes down interest rates when I lend those new banknotes out there, increase fiduciary media and lower reserve ratio. But how's that going to blow things up? Ex ante, everyone knows what's going on. So that, that's what I'm saying. That With Selgin and White talking about, you know, voluntary exchange and, and fiduciary media. And this would bring me back to another article, that, or a couple articles Walter and I wrote that uh, some other economists uh attacked, and then we went back and forth, and I think we have a book coming out on that now, and that um, is maturity mismatching, mm -hmm. which, in my opinion, is the root cause of business cycles, okay? Mm -hmm. And I think that maturity mismatching should not be allowed or would not be allowed in a truly voluntary exchange system, okay? Is what, what is maturity mismatching, except I lend something out that I don't have, okay? You lend me money, you deposit money, $100 in my bank for a year at whatever interest rate, and then I turn around and lend some of that at least out for a longer period of time than one year. Well, it's that's not my right to lend it out for longer than one year, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And we've written a paper on this. One had to do with the cycles, how it causes business cycles, and the other one talked about the morality of it, mm -hmm. the ethics. Use right, right, right. And, and so that would be my answer to them is fraction reserve banking is uh, fraudulent. I think that's the word we used in the title of one or more of the papers. It's fraudulent. Mm -hmm. Maturity mismatching is fraudulent. Mm -hmm. And yes, you know, one of the consequences of the fraud is that the uh, you get a business cycle from it. You know, if it's done in, you know, not five cents or whatever, you know, but right. then you get a business cycle. Yeah, I agree with that. Get a business cycle. Well, maturity mismatching is just a subset of uh, fractional reserve banking. 
No, I vice say versa, right? Fractional reserve banking is a subset of maturity mismatch. Sorry, yeah. I, I, no, no, I know. Well, I know you know this stuff Right. Oh, okay, great. So, yeah, and I, that's where I wanted to go to. So, how do you feel about this summary or distillation of the different views? So, um, right, like a like a, a statist economist or you know one who's not who doesn't care about the sorts of things we worry about thinks everything goes you know fiat money from the government and actions are does, yeah doesn't doesn't cause the business cycle period. Selgin and White think, oh, if it's if it's backed up by the central bank and there's coercion involved, then the commercial banks when they act in their profit maximizing capacity and choose their optimal reserve ratios could cause a business cycle. We agree there. Yeah. Mises says all fractional reserve banking period can cause the business cycle. And he just favors what he called free banking to, to limit it. But he also thinks as an offshoot, incidentally, gold mining theoretically, you know, the, in other words, the reason Mises thinks all fractional reserve banking causes the business cycle is he's viewing it as new money entering the loan market before it's had a chance to affect all the prices and wages. That's why technically, yeah, gold could do it under certain circumstances. And then you guys are taking an even more radical position of saying all maturity mismatching causes the business cycle. And, and that's why you're also, you think fractional reserve banking does, because that's one example of it or one case of it. So a lot of other economists are going to say, you guys keep jumping back and forth between arguments about ethics versus economic science. You know, I don't care what the what's moral or ethical. Let's just talk about hard tax here and what causes what. But your point, I think, Bill, is, and I, I know Hernando de Soto makes this point early on in his you know big book, is to say the way he puts it, yeah, we're going to focus on the, the legal aspects or whatever, but it shouldn't be surprising that if we note institutions systematically engaging in fraud, that that would have like empirical consequences or, or, or effects. That That's yeah. not a weird arcane medieval position for me to take. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing, but he was... Yeah, and obviously, he's right, in my opinion. Right. I'm shocked that <laughs> <laughs> that fraud creates problems. <laughs> right, okay. So, in principle, there is a distinction, like going back to the market failure stuff, like somebody, like a David Friedman or whatever, could say, yes, I understand there's a sense in which the market provides the optimal number of television sets per year and the way I would establish that, David Friedman would say, doesn't work so well when I try to explain the market providing the optimal number of ICBM sites to knock down incoming Soviet, this is you know back in the day, missiles, right? Because of the free rider problem of if my neighbor's chipping enough to have the ICBM thing, you know, defense SAM sites or whatever, then you know I can free ride. And there, and he's not he's not making a moral argument. He's just saying this is the way economics works, and it doesn't. And the morals don't come into play. It's just saying, up oh, that that's just how it is. I'm being intellectually honest that I think there's cases where the market doesn't work so well. And David Friedman was what I say, I'm still not for the state doing it for all the reasons we've listed. You know, they're, they're likely to antagonize people and make us more likely to get attacked and whatever. So I just empirically, I don't think the state's going to solve that problem. But I, David Friedman, admit because I'm so intellectually honest, yes, the market doesn't work so well on collective goods or public, things are called public goods as it does for pure private goods in the Samuelsonian sense. And so some people get frustrated when, in this fractional reserve debate, you guys are focusing on fraud. And they say, forget whether it's fraud or not, let's just focus on what causes the business cycle. So I'm, I, I'm just repeating myself, but I want the listener to understand why some economists think that's a weird move to make. But we do both. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, just to do one doesn't preclude doing the other. We're not only Austrian economists, we're libertarians too. We're mm -hmm. Austro-libertarians. So why not discuss both? Now, you know, they say that, what is it? The acorn doesn't go too far from the tree. Rand Paul uh, isn't too far away from Ron Paul. or Not as close as I'd like, but he's, mm -hmm. you know, pretty good. Well, David Friedman, uh, he's the acorn and Milton Friedman is the oak tree, uh, his dad. Well, he doesn't go too far away from his father. And he's taking the same view on, on ICBMs as his father took on antitrust. Right. Milton Friedman, to repeat, said, yes, antitrust, uh, rather, uh, monopoly is a market failure. However, it doesn't follow that the government necessarily can improve things. Sometimes it can't. And David Friedman would say the same thing. David Friedman would say, yes, uh, there's a market failure with ICBMs or defense or public goods, whatever. And it doesn't necessarily follow that the government can improve it, but sometimes it could. David is empiricist enough to say, well, you know, it could. And I'm empiricist enough to say, 
sometimes it's conceivable. It's not a logical contradiction to say that the government post office could do better than um, the Pony Express or uh, uh, any of the uh, other. Uh, it's not a logical contradiction. It's just an empirical issue. You know, there are certain reasons why we think that private mm -hmm. post office will do better than government post offices. But as I say, it's not a logical contradiction to say, arguendo, arguendo, don't get on my case, Bill, right. uh, <laughs> that, that a, a government post office could do something right, maybe just out of uh, pure luck or, or whatever. I mean, you know, they say, uh, what is it, an infinite number of uh, monkeys and an infinite number of typewriters, you'll come up with uh, Shakespeare. Well, the government could, you know, uh, every million or billion times uh, beat out the private enterprise. We're all Friedmanites now <laughs> in that oh. sense. Well, I, I think there's a couple issues here. One, one is the ethical issue or whatever. And, you know, to my way of thinking now, and again, we have the continuum problem, but there's the coercion. Can you coerce your child to keep them from running in the street, you know, and getting hit by a car? Of course you can, you know. Uh, but, you know, for adults, you know, normal adults, coercion to me is a bad thing. You don't coerce somebody else. I also think that it's, I know there, <laughs> you want to you see them go wild in, in some places. I know that most, well, some, let's say a lot of Christians, a lot of Catholics would disagree with that. But in that sense, uh, I think Jesus was basically an anarchist. I don't recall him ever using coercion on anybody, except for that one instance where he ran the money lenders out of the temple, okay, but I maintain it wasn't because he thought money lending was bad. It's just money lending in this sacred place is bad. You shouldn't be doing this in here. You know, you you violating. It's like you're trespassing. So mm -hmm. run run you out of here. So um, I don't see anything wrong with saying that you know the ethics of it is that everything should be voluntary. Okay, and then you come up with Mr. Friedman and his missiles and all that. And then the question is, ex ante, you know, what is the situation? Well, as soon as you get into that and you start looking at the fact that some bad guy has nuclear missiles, which he's aiming at you, then the question is, what do you do? And then we get to, as Walter said, does that mean that government's going to come up with the right defense? He's going to have to coerce you and me, government, to get our money to build up the defenses. Are they going to get it right? Well, I think in, in uh, the, the anarcho-capitalist views, we'll internalize all those externalities. We will preclude people who don't contribute to the um, uh, ICBMs or we'll make uh, threats to the Russians that, you know, if you bomb Taxachusetts, where there are a bunch of pinko um, uh, hippie uh, pacifists, uh, we're not going to bother you. But you mess with Texas, we'll kick your butt. Uh, so those would be some of the answers for that. Uh, I wanted to elaborate on, you know, I, I Bill is about to be hit by a truck, and I push him out of the way of the truck, and I break his ribs. Uh, have I engaged in coercion? Well, you know, this is sort of a very delicate issue. Uh, in one sense, uh, what I did is I saved his life. In another sense, if I, uh, you know, if he sues me for breaking his ribs, you know, that's mm -hmm. uh, uh, a bit harsh on on his point. So coercion opens up a can of worms, and it, it's a very delicate uh, issue worthy of discussion on its own. But getting back to, to the main issue, I, I think Bill is right. Uh, if he uh, goes in his backyard and discovers a, a whole bunch of uh, gold coins, or he doesn't even have to mint them or anything, they're just gold coins, well, the prices of uh, cars in in, uh, in New Orleans are going to go a little bit up, and the interest rates are going to go down because he's uh, lending these gold coins. And I refuse to say that that's um, that there's any problem with that. It, it's just like... Uh, when we discovered that lima beans cure cancer and now the price of lima beans catapults, well, that's not a problem. That's, that's just the market. But Walter, if I could, on your point, you keep focusing on, on the prices. You know, the interest rate goes down. But to me, the real issue is not the prices, although, don't get me wrong, I certainly understand the importance of prices and what goes on. But the real question is the consequences of that. And the consequences of that are we allocate resources differently than we would have otherwise. And the question then becomes, is that different allocation a misallocation or it is an appropriate reallocation? 
And if there's no coercion ex ante, to me, the price of the cars in New Orleans going up and of interest rates in New Orleans going down and people building, buying new houses or building new houses, whatever, that's not a misallocation of resources. That's not a misallocation of resources. So to me, that's the key is the allocation of resources. Given people's preferences and given the technologies and all that kind of stuff, does something happen to cause a change in the allocation of resources? Now we're talking ex ante, that means that we misallocate resources or do we reallocate them more in accord with people's preferences? Obviously, That's reallocate. Well. It's the same thing we discover gold, uh, we discover oil, or we discover a new use for oil. At one time, oil was just this yucky uh, substance, and now we discovered a use for oil. Well, we reallocated resources. We didn't misallocate resources, uh, although we misallocated resources from a Monday morning quarterbacking point of view, namely because we didn't know that oil could do these things. So in retrospect, it was a misallocation, but in prospect or in reality, it's, it's not a misallocation. So you and I are on the on the same way, right? But oh, I think we go just, yeah. How, how often, how long have we discussed these things? <laughs> well, we've co-authored a few papers on this. <laughs> okay, let me. I, we got about ten minutes left here. Let me again just to push it. So, and maybe the answer is going to be you guys disagree with this real quick way that sometimes it's communicated to the public. But again, the a standard way to quickly get the insights of Austrian business cycle theory across to a general crowd is to say something like the, you know, with the, the commercial banks get engaging, perhaps fueled by new base money created out of thin air by Bernanke or whatever. The banks lend out money. There's no genuine save extra saving that has occurred. This is just money flowing in. Interest rates get pushed down and then entrepreneurs start longer projects than there's real, you know, there's aggregate savings to actually reach the finish line. And that's why this is an unsustainable boom. And so when Bill finds a bunch of gold and then lends it out, that hasn't created more farmland or factories or other things. It's just gold coins. So wouldn't that, I think that the argument is from like a Misesian viewpoint, just pushing that is to say, we could imagine a situation where if it's a lot of gold and he lends it all out and that does change interest rates, entrepreneurs start a bunch of long-term projects that were unprofitable yesterday. Now with the new loans, they're profitable. And it's not clear, is it just going to be things that require more gold to finish? Like, you know, actual is a, is a physical input? Because if not, how can the economy be able to finish those projects now just because Bill happened to find a bunch of yellow metal? All right. So this goes back to a point I made right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Both Mises and Rothbard say that money is sui generis. But if money is a capital good, and what you're saying is, I go out my backyard and find a whole bunch of new capital goods that other people find useful, mm-hmm. and let's think about why and how this is useful, Bob. A lawyer comes in, and he, you want to buy a house from somebody, and you go, and the lawyer comes in, draws up the contract and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the house isn't different. There's no change in the house or anything else, right? Mm -hmm. But from an economic point of view, something important has happened, and the lawyer is responsible for it as an input into the production process. And that is that the title to the house changes hands so that the house becomes more valuable. If it wasn't more valuable in your hands than it is in the hands of the guy who's selling it to you, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't buy it from him and he wouldn't sell it to you. So it's also like moving food from Chicago down to New Orleans on a truck. The food physically is the same. Everything's the same. We just change its location. But we don't say then that the truck isn't a capital good and that the labor being used in there isn't productive just like the lawyer services are productive. Money is a medium of exchange. That's its primary function, okay? And what it does, it facilitates the exchange of goods in the process, production process, so that in Austrian terms, it moves, the the goods move closer 
to being a consumption good, closer in, in time to being a consumption good. It changes from being a, you know, a, a fifth level good to a fourth, a third, a second, all that. So no matter how much money you come up with, as long as people want to use it as money, it's new capital goods. And what it will do will facilitate more exchanges than would have taken place without it. Money is a capital good. I'd like to add to that, Bob, you ask very succinctly, you ask, uh, well, how can we afford all these new houses? And the answer is because we're richer. Mm -hmm. We're richer, not in, in terms of having more stuff other than the, the money, but richer in, in terms of uh, transactions costs are reduced. That lawyer who used to charge uh, $3,000 to, uh, uh, to mediate the, the sale of the house now charges three hundred. dollars So uh, we can have more houses now. Money, you've got to focus. That's one of the things you've got to focus on, that Mises and Rothbard were wrong when they said money was sui generis. It wasn't a consumer good. It wasn't a capital good. Well, it's not a consumer good. I mean, you know, you Scrooge McDuck, you know, kind of mm -hmm. thing. But money is a capital good. It's essential to modern production processes. You couldn't produce 10 cars a year Without, well, that's an exaggeration, but you, how many cars could you produce without money if it was a barter economy? Yeah, assume all money went away. We yeah. Most people would start. back to barter, for God's sake. And, money and, and is essential. And, and how is it essential? It's essential as a capital good, a good that facilitates part of the production process, which is the transfer of title of goods. Yeah, imagine if money just disappeared. There was no money. Ninety percent of us would all die. I don't know. I don't. I don't say ninety percent for sure, but a lot of people would die. Mm -hmm. So money is a, a is a capital good. It's a productive good. When we have more of it, we're richer. And when we're richer, we can afford more houses. That's where the more houses come from, indirectly, but that's where it comes from. Mm -hmm. Okay. So just for the sake of completeness, I mean, I think I can guess what you guys are going to say. So, given the you know, how you answered that Selgin and White are going to say, right. And that's why in a fractional reserve free banking system, when the demand to hold money goes up and the commercial banks sort of passively create more fiduciary media, they print up more banknotes and distribute them, you know, lend it out and they end up in the hands of the people who want to hold more notes. The community is richer. And that's why this is better than rigidly insisting on 100% reserves. No. So what's wrong with what they said? Well, that's because what I they think said they... Is Look at this. I'm very rich. This is um, a million-dollar thing from Argentina. I have one from Zimbabwe over here. I have five $100 trillion Zimbabwean central bank notes. Okay? Put up or shut up, Bill. I've got, I've got it right here. Bob, Bob, <laughs> Bob, to get back to your point about how mm. would you respond to that, well, that would be like if I went out in my yard and found a whole bunch of coins that were gold colored, mm -hmm. but base metal inside, and I'm going out and, and buying things with it and lending it and all that, and people think they're getting gold, and they're not. So the, 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 yeah. you, what are the banks, what are those banks lending out with fractional reserve banking? Fiduciary media, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I, I can't help it, but Selgin and White seem to think fiduciary media is okay. Oh, they, they clearly do. Uh, that, yeah. Well, yeah. I don't. Fundamental, we have fundamental problems. Right. But, but Selgin and White, besides being, you know, great at a bunch of history things and money and all that, they're macroeconomists. And I was at a conference with them, oh, about 10 years ago, where they drew some graphs. And I said, well, wait a minute. You have money on this axis or whatever it is. I said, how are you measuring that? In what units? And then they had something else on it and said, what units are you measuring that? And what it turned out, because of a failure to use what the physicists call units now, used to call dimensions, but, you know, length, mm, weight, right. you know, that length, mass, et cetera. Uh, their math, the math didn't work out. And I said something to them. They said, oh, well, we'll show you how it works. We'll get back to you. And, of course, zip, you know. And it's the same thing, you know. If, if you want to say that, you know, you can temporarily improve things, i.e. make it look better 
through misallocating resources by pumping out fiduciary media and having interest rates go down. But remember, that is going to cause a business cycle, an Austrian-style business cycle, and it is going to mean it is going to be systematic but unsustainable. Whereas with my goal, there's nothing unsustainable about it. Okay, so that's great. Can I keep you guys for like literally three more minutes? Yes. Okay, is that okay, Ralph? Okay. So, and again, this is just because we're getting the viewpoint, so this is good stuff. So your response is just like I think the listener can understand everything you were saying, Bill, earlier about if I go take more gold and lend it out or do this or that, how can that mess things up systematically? It doesn't that just intuitively, how, how could that be? But yet it does seem like, oh, wait a minute, if you grabbed a bunch of copper coins and painted them gold and then did the same trick, now if you're saying, you know what, I'm not so, my intuition here doesn't say everything's going to be fine. I think people agree with that. Yeah. Um, That's fraudulent. Right. And so one thing is the, the fractional reserve free bankers would say, oh, but everybody knows it's fiduciary media. And, and so their claims on it. And I, I get that. And we, we keep coming back to this issue of, is it really voluntary or, or not? But here, this last thing, this just popped into my head, and I'm curious to hear what you guys would think. Suppose, Bill, you did do that trick. You, you know, you got the coins that were actually copper or whatever, and you you faked it, made it look gold, and distributed it. But for many years, people didn't realize it. Like, it just so happened those coins ended up in, like, you know, the, the cash holdings in, like, the bottom of the trunk that a bunch of people were using just as their backup gold, and just in case the big one comes, and they kept it under their mattress. So if everyone erroneously believed they were gold, even though they really weren't, would everything be fine? No. Until like some little kid says, Grandpa, do you know this is copper? Like that seems like a weird thing. (laughs) Eventually, you know, it's like the emperor had no clothes. Eventually somebody's going to say, oh, well, let me look at these. And they're going to scratch them with their fingernails and say, oh my God. And when that happens and it becomes quickly broadcast, you're going to have a huge... You know, the longer this thing went on, the more the misallocation of resources and the greater the crash is going to be. Okay, so it's a misallocation relative to what that future horrible discovery at some point. So that even though everything seems to be fine, you say, no, that's actually an unsustainable boom. Yeah. They just don't know it yet. Just exactly. like all, yeah. Well, Austrian right. business cycle theory never predicts the uh, inflection point. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not empiricists. We don't know exactly when it will occur. You know what this reminds me of? The, this story you're talking about painting gold leaf or around mm. uh, copper coins. When the duck in the cartoon starts walking and he doesn't mm. realize that there's nothing under him mm-hmm. and he keeps walking. And then all of a sudden he realizes it and then he falls. Yep, right? Yep. That, that's what it reminded me of. But the but the economic point of it is that we're not predicting when, when the uh, bust will come. Just that there will be a bust. Now, it might be that the bust will come in 50 years when somebody uh, finds out about this. And then, as Bill says, meanwhile, 50 years worth of misallocation has occurred. So Mm -hmm. there'll be a tremendous bust. Whereas if it's discovered uh, one day later, it'll be a minor bust. So quantity is very important, and, and, and Austrian business cycle theoreticians are not able to give you the time dimension as to when the bust will, will occur. And, and, and the point that you're making, well, it's a very good one, we could misallocate resources for a long time, right? And that might look materially as if we haven't misallocated, because look, we built this office building, we built mm-hmm. this factory, we laid railroad tracks and all that, but then back up and say, yes. But if we'd known, if we hadn't been misled by the gold leaf or whatever, you know, we wouldn't have done that. We would have done this, 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 and this, and people would have been happier. Yep. Okay. We would have had a greater reduction in felt unease rather than a temporary reduction in felt unease, which leads to, a, you know, more felt unease in the future. Okay, great. Another yeah, analogy I, would be that lima beans uh, c- cause cancer, but instead of lima beans, we got string beans. Now, string beans look good, and I like string beans, but uh, we really wanted lima beans, and we didn't get lima beans, so a lot of people died from cancer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. if, if you die from cancer from not eating lima beans, I'm, <laughs> I'm probably two feet in the grave already. <laughs> Shut up and eat your lima beans. <laughs> 
Okay. Well, well, thanks. That's probably a good spot to wrap this up. So I think this was good. And, and you guys actually did move me more towards your, so I'm, I'm still on the fence, but I'm about to fall off toward your side. How's that? Um, so uh, folks for the, the links, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 181. My guests have been Walter Block and Bill Barnett, who've co-authored many articles. We'll, I'll put links for all the relevant stuff at the show notes page. Guys, thanks again for uh, joining me. Thanks for having us, Bob. Thanks for having us. Always a pleasure, Always Bob. good to see you. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com. <laughs>